Welcome to the Mornings with Sue and Andy podcast for Wednesday, August 24th. We begin with a look at the war in Ukraine. The conflict entered its sixth month on the same day Ukrainians celebrated their Independence Day. We look at the past six months and ahead to what may come for the war-torn country with Christian Luprecht, professor at the Royal Military College and senior fellow at the McDonald Laurier Institute. Still on the topic of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, earlier this week, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau announced the formation of a team that will fight disinformation being spread by Russian operatives. So we'll talk about just how prevalent that issue is and what can be done to successfully combat it with Marcus Kolga, Senior Fellow at the McDonald Laurier Institute and founder of disinfowatch.org. Next, look at the complexities behind the current job market in Canada. Very low unemployment, many companies desperate to fill job openings, and yet a considerable amount of people still looking for work. We discuss with Fabian Long, labor economist from McGill University. And finally, it's a new phenomenon called tipflation. We examine the new option being presented at some restaurants to tip your wait staff at a rate of 30%. We talk tipping with James Rylett, Vice President of Restaurants Canada. Six months ago today, Vladimir Putin ordered Russian troops into Ukraine. Since then, millions of Ukrainians have fled cities, have been destroyed, and there's been talk of even nuclear war. Christian Loy Presht, a professor of the Royal Military College in Queen's University and a senior fellow at the McDonald Laurier Institute, joins us to discuss what has happened over the last six months and how it all may end. Good morning to you, Professor. Good morning. Let's go back six months. And I do recall past six months, we were seeing the troops being amassed on the border of Ukraine. But, you know, at the beginning of it, what initiated the invasion? Yeah, I think so. When you're talking about the troops, the first, I think, lesson, of course, is never believe anything that authoritarian states say. One of the key differences between democracies and authoritarian and tyrannical regimes is that they look to control information and spin information uh, rather than allow for the free flow of information. And, of course, uh, the Russians got the better of most of the people in uh, the West with their initial drop. I mean... What what ultimately triggered the invasion, I guess, is a, is a matter of debate and contention. But Putin clearly had uh, four key objectives. One was to overthrow the democratically and legitimately elected regime in Kiev. The second was to ensure that Ukraine would essentially become either a rump state or uh, a state that would be fully under uh, Russia's control. The third was to try to divide and destabilize Europe, the European Union, and NATO. And the fourth was to drive the Americans out of Europe, where he saw a moment of weakness, especially in the Biden administration, uh, after the rather horrendous drawdown of the Americans in Afghanistan. And the key, of course, is that he didn't achieve any of those objectives. And that's an important message and signaling in terms of deterrence that um, Putin will never achieve his uh, political objectives on the battlefield. So where do we stand as of today then, Professor? Sadly, it's uh, the Independence Day of Ukrainians, uh, of Ukraine, but clearly that's not the case we're in right at this moment. So where do we look towards to see, will there be any resolution or is Putin just going to continue, you know, bombing and fighting and, and doing whatever he possibly can to try and achieve one of those goals you mentioned? Yeah, so let's look at that from a strategic perspective, where Russia, of course, is a crumbling empire, deeply corrupt, um, uh, with a kleptocratic elite. 
um, and relatively little legitimacy in the eyes of its population, given how it mismanaged the pandemic and how the regime has mismanaged the Russian economy. So Putin had to weave a narrative to bring the Russians together, and starting an external war for any authoritarian regime has always proven the classic tactic when it looks like your legitimacy might be falling apart to try to rally the nation behind you. And that appears to have worked for Putin, but only partially, because, of course, he's had to resort to extreme measures not just in terms of propaganda, but in terms of uh, new degrees of coercion and control over his population, which suggests that he's probably quite worried about even his own legitimacy in the eyes of the Russian population. On the other side, he's confronted by a fledgling but increasingly robust democratic free market Ukraine. And the real concern for Putin was never about security and sort of as he claimed uh, that uh, uh, Ukraine joining NATO or so. I mean, this is years or possibly decades away. This was always about uh, that the Russian population might look at Ukraine and get the idea that there is actually a better system. However problematic Ukrainian democracy and sort of even corruption within the Ukrainian economy is, the Ukrainian system is clearly more legitimate and more robust than anything that the Russian elite can offer. And so this was about making sure that Russians don't get the wrong idea about possibly a type of regime change. And so we can expect that even if the fighting were to die down, uh, Russia's impetus to continue to try to undermine Ukraine politically, economically, socially, militarily, diplomatically will continue. So in, on all these fronts, Ukraine is going to need many years of support from the West, not just to shore up Ukraine itself, but also to make sure that Putin understands that the sort of tactics that he thinks he can employ to strong arm his periphery and his neighborhood to rebuild what some have called the Soviet reunion are not going to work. Speaking with Christian Loyprecht, professor at the Royal Military College and Queen's University, senior fellow at the MacDonald Laurier Institute. To, to look back again and reflect, Professor, six months ago, I would think, and I want to get your thoughts on this, uh, February 24th, this happens, and a couple weeks pass, maybe even a, a month, a couple of months, I think a lot of the world was surprised that this was not just a roll in by the Russians and, uh, you know, do what they want to a certain extent. Are you surprised six months in that we're still in this conflict? Yeah, I guess I was less surprised than many other folks. But, of course, I've been watching this longer and more closely. We all knew that the Russian armed forces had significant structural problems, morale problems, um, and manpower problems, and those have all come to manifest themselves, and they're now compounded by what Russia has proven itself as an incompetent military leadership that um, does not have the support of the soldiers that it is trying to lead. And on top of that, what a lot of Western analysts didn't realize is that Russian logistic lines run by rail, not by road. And so it's much easier to disrupt logistic lines by rail because there's just fewer rail lines. And so that turned out to be a particular problem for the Russians uh, in the initial run-up. At the same time, we underestimated the foresight that countries, especially Canada, the United Kingdom, and the U.S. had with Operation Unifier, where since 2015, um, Canada and its allies uh, had trained 35,000 Ukrainian troops in everything from battlefield tactics to strategy and strategic planning. And it shows that that has paid off handsomely and that the Ukrainians, even armed with relatively outdated Soviet weapons uh, in the initial months of the war, uh, were able to stave off um, much of the Russian advance 
uh, not because they had superior equipment, but they had they had superior motivation, they had superior training, uh, and they had planning and foresight. Uh, and I think what's tragic from a Canadian perspective is, of course, that we had the foresight to invest in paying it forward, but now we've been able to do so relatively little to continue to support Ukraine and our NATO partners because of the relatively benign neglect that our Canadian Armed Forces have suffered over the last 20 years from repeated federal governments. Now the million-dollar question, Professor. How do you see this uh, coming to an end? I, I don't want to use the word resolution, but coming to an end. How, how do you see that? I think the closest analogy is probably the Kashmir conflict between India and Pakistan, where at one point or another there will be there will be a ceasefire of some sort, whether agreed upon or uh, simply during the winter months where fighting will die down because in the late fall and in the spring fighting is very difficult when the ground is very soft um, and so what the russians are going to do is shore up their defensive lines this is why the ukrainians are pushing very hard in the coming weeks um, to try to because wherever the winter line will be that will likely be the russian defensive line come uh, come the spring and so what we'll see is sort of a continuous flaring up of this conflict probably over decades to come and uh, this is why ukraine will go, be needing a, a support over the long term uh, from partner and allied countries because this conflict is not going to go away and we're going to see, I think, repeated efforts by the Putin regime to try to achieve its objectives on the battlefield and rally its troops. At the same time, we need to make sure that we understand, as with uh, our adversarial relationship with China, that our opposition is not against the Russian people. It's ultimately against the Russian regime because I think in 20 years from now, when the next generation of Russian leaders uh, comes to lead, they are uh, they don't have the sort of grievances that the Putin regime has with regards to uh, the uh, the end of the Soviet Union um, and its periphery. They're much more interested in simply running a kleptocratic economy. So I do think there is a more peaceful future, uh, but it is likely 20, 25 years out until the current generation of uh, Putin and his cronies dies off. Thank you so much for your thoughts this morning, Professor. Really appreciate your time. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. That is Christian Loypresh, who is a professor at the Mount Royal Royal Military College and Queen's University in Kingston, senior fellow as well at the McDonald-Laurier Institute. Russia recently blacklisted the McDonald-Laurier Institute, a move seen as a way for Russia to control the narrative and spread disinformation because the McDonald-Laurier Institute has openly spoken throughout the war in Ukraine about the atrocities inflicted upon the people of Ukraine. Marcus Kolga is the founder of DisinfoWatch.org and a senior fellow at the McDonald-Laurier Institute Centre for Advancing Canada's Interests Abroad and joins us this morning to talk about disinformation and the federal government efforts to combat it. Good morning to you, Marcus. Thanks for joining us. Good morning. Thanks so much for having me on. So what does it ex- exactly mean when Russia blacklists something like the McDonald-Laurier Institute? Is it even a concern? Uh, well, you know, I, I think it's, uh, it's definitely concern for the Russian opposition and human rights activists that we've been working with. Um, that's sort of a designation. So what, what the, the Russian government did was basically the Minister of Justice designated uh, the McDonald-Laurier Institute as an undesirable organization. And I should also mention that the Ukrainian-Canadian Congress was also listed, put placed on that same list at the same time. And so what that means is that it's, um, it becomes illegal for 
Russian citizens to basically interact with the Institute or with the Ukrainian-Canadian Congress. And because of the work that we do and have been doing uh, in supporting those Russian opposition leaders and, and human rights activists advocating on their behalf, it could complicate that relationship. Um, but what the, Russian, what the Russian government is trying to do, the Putin regime is trying to do with this designation is basically to intimidate uh, the institution, uh, the senior fellows that work there, um, it, it intimidate them into silence. And it's an effort to discredit them in the eyes of Canadians and the rest of the world. Um, but I think from our perspective, I mean, it's, it's a bit of a badge of honor. It means that we're, we're doing the right things, that we're saying the right things. Um, and doing it enough to, to aggravate uh, the highest levels of the Russian government mm. to have them place us, place us on this list. So, you know, there, there are some drawbacks, there are some benefits, but um, all in all, I, I don't think it's a, a huge problem for the Institute. You mentioned, Marcus, the Russians discrediting institutions like yours, but can you also give us some examples on how they've been controlling the narrative using disinformation? Well, look, they've been doing this for a long time. It's nothing new. Um, the Soviets, in, in during you know that that Russian Soviet period, they were uh, very much engaging. The KGB was engaging in disinformation as well back then. Um, uh, many of the narratives, uh, some of them uh, focused on the Central and Eastern European communities here in Canada who are fighting for the for the freedom of their nations that were occupied by the Soviets. This would include Ukraine, um, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, um, others, Poland, and such. Um, and and they would label them those those communities being sort of neo-Nazi supporters in, in efforts to discredit them. And this is a narrative that started already in the 60s, and it's been sort of revitalized and exploited again through the, with the Putin regime. And and we actually saw this during the uh, beginning, the first phases of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, where they claimed that uh, Russian troops were entering Ukraine in order to denazify it. Of course, you know, Ukraine's president is um, a, a Jewish Ukrainian. So, uh, you know, the, the, the suggestion that there's, you know, Nazis running Ukraine is, is patently absurd. Um, so they've been doing this for quite some time. Uh, during COVID, uh, you know, that was a, 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 a wonderful opportunity for the Russians to promote anti-vaccination, vaccine hesitancy narratives and such. And what they did was uh, amplify some of the more sort of fringe elements that were against it. You know, being uh, vaccine hesitant is, is perfectly normal. It's legitimate. Some people are concerned about it, and those concerns are legitimate. Uh, the problem was that the Russians were amplifying voices who were calling for the overthrow of the government. And that's not normal. That's anti-democratic. Um, and so these are the sorts of narratives that uh, the Russians have uh, have really been pushing. And, of course, there's the, the case of the 2016 U.S. presidential election where the where Russian interference was very well documented, and I think that we're seeing echoes and ramifications of that interference still today in the United States and, and a lot of the discord and the division in that country. So, you know, the Russians haven't let, uh, you know, they haven't uh, stopped doing this. They're not slowing down. They're, they're only intensifying these operations. And so this announcement by the government that they are uh, standing up a team to, uh, to counter some of this is, is actually quite welcome. What does this team, do you think it'll work, you know, what this team is supposed to do as announced yesterday by the Prime Minister? Yeah, well, you know, we don't really have the details yet. Um, I think it's safe to assume that this group will keep an eye 
on informa- Russian information operations targeting Canada. They will apparently work with our international allies. So there, a number of our allies are doing this work very well and have been doing it very well for some time. And so that's good. They'll get uh, information, data, intelligence from them. And, and the hope for me as, as a practitioner and someone who has been working in disinformation uh, and monitoring it for the past 10 years is that the, this team will then analyze it and expose it to the Canadian public so, so that it's a tool and a resource for Canadian media, elected officials, um, and Canadians in general so that they can better understand the narratives that are targeting us why they're targeting us, um, and what those goals are. Uh, Because having that understanding helps inoculate Canadians against that disinformation. So that's my hope. Now, whether it'll work or not, (laughs) who knows? I mean, the announcement was just made yesterday. So I think we'll have to wait and see uh, how this all works out. But but I'm hopeful and optimistic because this is something that uh, people like myself in civil society have been calling for for quite some time. I want to ask you about the challenges in 2022, Marcus, to battle disinformation just because the online world is so vast and different sites. I would think that it's, it's such an organic thing that your, your focus and the, the breadth of your scope of looking at this disinformation has to be wide and almost widening daily. Yeah, well, you know, it, it all starts with Russian and, and Chinese and Iranian state media. Uh, that's where you can see sort of those narratives start to emerge because that's what those governments use, those totalitarian regimes. Um, they use those platforms to sort of initially inject the information environment with their disinformation. And so keeping an eye on those is, is the first place. What, what uh, really has happened over the past uh, two to three years is that um, far right and far left platforms, and this is something that's really important to remember, that this isn't a partisan issue. The Russians don't, uh, the Russian government doesn't target specifically right-wing issues or left-wing issues. They target any issue that will uh, have the, the greatest potential to divide us. And so that means going after the far left and the far right. And unfortunately, we're seeing a real proliferation of those Russian-developed uh, narratives, also on the Chinese side, um, being advanced and amplified on these these platforms. And many of those platforms, in fact, exist right here in Canada. Um, One of them is a a platform called Global Research. It's out of Montreal. Uh, It was identified by the State Department as a pillar of Russian disinformation in a report two years ago. And and these are the sorts of narratives, these are the sort of tactics that are used by the Russians to use those domestic platforms to to amplify these narratives. And you're right, they're, they're expanding. And so the number of platforms, you know, certainly social media accounts that we need to keep an eye on is growing. And, uh, and, it's, and it's great to have the Canadian government coming on board with extra eyes to, uh, to do that work. Awesome. Thanks so much, Marcus. Appreciate your time this morning. Anytime. Thanks for having me on. Thank you. Marcus Kolga is the founder of Disinfo Watch and a senior fellow at the McNaughton Laurier Institute. You can go online for more information at disinfowatch.org. when businesses started having to close at the beginning of the pandemic, workers then had to shift industries to remain essential and keep being employed and making money. Well, Canada's rapidly growing inflation rates are having a similar impact on the job market. To talk about this shift in Canada's labour market, we're joined this morning by Fabian Langa, a labour economist from McGill University. Good morning to you, Fabian. Thanks for being with us. Good morning. Okay, so how do we tie inflation rates to an impact in the job market? 
Well, I mean, the first thing to think about is what is the value of a job? What is the wage that people are being paid? And there we should think about the real wage as the as the right um, indicator. And what we have seen in the last year is a rapid increase in inflation. We are running at about 8% now um, with nominal wage growth. So wages, just like the, the headline wage that you receive being growing at a slower rate, 5%. So the price of an hour of labor is in fact declining in in real terms. The amount of goods and services that you can receive for an hour worked for the average worker in Canada is declining. Uh, and that means that um, you know labor is cheap. There's a lot of labor demand, uh, and labor supply is maybe not as large as it would be if wage growth was accept- would accelerate. Fabian, we we didn't put it out there for our listeners to send in questions, but we've got a great question here. I'll put it to you. Uh, he says, or she says, the labor shortage and where the people are is a very good question. What happened to the people during the pandemic? There wasn't a later sh- labor shortage before COVID. Now we have a lot of people that perhaps have just decided they don't want to work anymore. Is there any truth to that, Fabian? People just don't want to work anymore. Are they, you know, uh, decided to just leave the job market altogether? Uh, I don't think that actually bears out um, the data. The data shows us something else. So we had very tight labor markets. By tight labor market, I mean that uh, uh, very few people who are seeking jobs relative to the number of employers looking for workers already prior to the pandemic in 2019. Um, And then, of course, during the pandemic, we had like all the disturbances and then the, the people had temporarily to leave their jobs. Uh, but by now, the fraction of the population, the fraction of the population, especially the prime age population working, is as high as it was in 2019. So I don't, I don't think that's quite uh, in line with um, uh, the, the premise of the question is quite correct. Uh, instead, I think we actually saw tight labor markets already in, in prior to the pandemic, and we are seeing the same tight labor markets now. Uh, if not more so. Um, and we have seen employment come back. So people are working at the same rates today as they did prior to the pandemic, except with maybe a small decline among workers aged 55 and older, or 60 and older. So there, I think what we have seen is that some people have uh, have, have pulled up or started, retired earlier than they planned otherwise, um, given the consequences of the pandemic, and they just you know, they changed their life. They started new hobbies, and they have decided not to go back to the labor market. But overall, like employment rates are really high. Uh, it's just that the demand for labor is even higher. Fabian, I'm curious about your response to this, you know, the the labor shortage, obviously not over, that employers now, because there are jobs available, not the workers to fill them, employers having to lower their hiring expectations. That's kind of a sad commentary, isn't it? Um, In what sense? Like lower their hiring expectations in the sense that the, the that the likelihood that they can fill a position? Yeah, and it seems, you know, if, if you've got, you know, a high expectation for what you're looking for from an employee, the fact that we can't get the employees, so we just lower what we are hoping that people will be able to do or want to do, it just seems sort of a, a sad commentary to me that that's sort of the only way we're going to get somebody to come and work for us. No, but the reason we have, uh, employers have difficulties to find people to work for them is because there are lots of options for employees out there. So I think that's a very positive thing, right? We run the economy not for uh, not for the employers only, but also for the employees. So you can think about it the other way around. The employees have options. 
Okay. And uh, I think what is what is probably um, missing is that the employers are not uh, not adjusting to this rapidly enough by raising wages. Right? So if you have if you have a need to fill a position, right, and you have a hard time filling that position, well, it's time to raise those wages. All right, that's an interesting conversation. Mm-hmm. I've never seen a time like this in my life. We appreciate you breaking it down for us, Fabian. Great, thank you for having me. Thank you. That is uh, Fabian Langa. Labor economist at McGill University. And um, yeah, we'll throw that down the text line. If, are you one of these people that uh, had a job, found a better opportunity, left your other job behind? It's still sitting empty because uh, uh, to your point, Sue, I don't know where where everybody went, but we have all these opportunities out there. And to your point, yeah, you know, you might look for 10 applicants and really find the best one. Now you might be happy to get one applicant mm-hmm. and it might not be the quality, but you got to fill that position as an employer. It does seem like the standard tip when dining out has increased, and some debit machines are prompting options up to 30% for that tip. James Rylett, Restaurant Canada's vice president, joins us to explain the increased options and if they have actually changed the way people tip. Good morning, and thanks for your time, James. Good morning. Thanks for having me. I think most diners know that the machines, when you get those prompts on those little debit machines, are about 10 to 20% for options when it comes to tipping. But lately, we've noticed some higher options. Uh, what's behind the increase? Um, well, the, the options are set by the operator. So um, I think what you're seeing is people are tipping more, and uh, they're just uh, adjusting the options to, uh, to uh, account for that. I know people say, oh, well, who would... Who would uh, tip over 25 percent but six percent of albertans do use the 25 or 30 percent uh, um, option so it is uh, something that happens quite often so six percent of albertans did you say yeah that's right interesting okay so i mean how when you do a survey like this what what exactly are you asking you're specifically saying you know if here's your bill what would you pay on it kind of thing and and have you noticed things change through the pandemic when it comes to that yeah, well, we, we've definitely noticed that uh, tipping is up after the pandemic. Uh, 44% of uh, customers say that they're tipping more. Uh, that's nationwide. So uh, it's uh, it's a significant number. Um, I think most people realize that it's, it was a hard pandemic on everybody, but especially hard on, um, on servers that... Uh, spent a, a good chunk of the last two years out of work. Um, so uh, people are recognizing that. And I, I think also people miss their servers. So they're they're saying, you know, here's a little extra to uh, because you've had a hard time. It is such a subjective thing, James. I'm wondering, you know, I'll ask you personally, uh, how much do you feel is fair when it comes to tipping? If, if you get satisfactory service, I'm not talking about blow your socks off, they brought you an anniversary piece of cake and a glass of wine on the house, that kind of a thing. What do you think is fair? Um, well, it's hard for me to say. I, I you know, I, I kind of change depending on the the service, but uh, you know, I'm always in the twenty percent range. Uh, sometimes a point or two be, uh, below, sometimes a couple points ahead, and um, I'm by by far the majority of the people. Um, you know, in our survey, half the people are, are in the fifteen to nineteen percent range. So. Uh, you know, it's uh, again. It's just like everyone. I think if if I feel like it was exceptional service, and I feel I can afford it as well. I, I think um, we never ask people to tip more than they can afford. And uh, if do, if people are feeling like they have a little extra in their pocket and they want to share it, well, 
go for it. Your thoughts on, uh, Andy talked about this earlier this morning, tipping on the total bill, which includes the GST, or should we be taking that GST out of the total and tipping on what remains? Yeah, it depends on what expert you talk about. In general uh, terms, uh, most uh, um, etiquette experts uh, tell us that you should tip on based on the bill um, before tax. So, um, Before tax. Not everybody does that simply because uh, the math gets a little harder, but uh, <laughs> it's uh, it's um, that's what etiquette uh, people say it is, is the before taxes. Nice to have an expert back me up and people are <laughs> calling me a cheapo. Um, okay, <laughs> last question. This is uh, related but a little bit uh, off the path here. You know, we've heard some people say if I get bad service, I might leave a penny or a nickel on the table. If we are unhappy with our service, is it best to leave a low tip or is it best to talk to somebody? Um, you know, I, again, tipping is up to you, and if you decide uh, low tip or no tip is uh, is called for, that's up to you. Um, I think people who leave a penny or a nickel, uh, um, it, it's it's a definite insult, and and I think most operators would much rather you you talk to them and say what was what the problem was and give them the opportunity to uh, to correct the problem. Uh, quick question to just wrap things up. Somebody saying I always tip in cash because that way I know my server specifically who earned that pay is going to get to keep it. Is that in fact true or does cash and whatever's tipped out on a credit card all go in the same pot? Uh, it all goes in the same pot. For most uh, for most places, they uh, tip out on or they they um, take the credit card and then debit uh, tips and they uh, they at the end of the shift, we'll figure them out. Um, and if you have a tip-sharing pool in the restaurant, it, it all all the cash and all the other tips go into a, a pool, and then they, they share them amongst the staff who are participating in the pool at the end of the shift. James, thanks for the discussion this morning. We appreciate it. Thank you. You guys have a great day. That is James Rylett, VP of Restaurants Canada.